Hello and welcome back to the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. My name is Adam, your host. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe at the moment. This week I've got a different episode to the normal. For the first time on the podcast, I'm speaking to a journalist, Stephen Higgins. Stephen makes regular appearances on national radio to discuss tennis and has his own site, Cross Court View, dedicated to the sport. I really enjoyed talking to Stephen and getting this alternative view into the world of Irish tennis. I think you'll find this episode really interesting. Uh, We talk about the popularity of tennis in Ireland, Stephen's best experiences while covering tournaments, his path into tennis journalism, the challenges he faces, and more. I hope you'll enjoy. So let's get into it. Right, so Stephen, uh, firstly, if you could choose any superpower, what do you think you'd choose and, and why? Well, there's, there's a myriad of choices, but I'm going to be extremely dull and go with flying. I thought a lot of the other stuff would kind of get you into trouble, things like x-ray vision, etc., super strength, super speed. So flying, like, I mean, of all times, I suppose, during the pandemic, you certainly miss the ability to move around to different yeah. countries. So I would say that would be top of the list, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so how, how kind of are you doing during the lockdown? How have the last few months been for you? this this new kind of way of life i think it has been actually a mix of the start i was actually fine in terms of i suppose the immediacy of march and april where it's like people are panicking and that's what to do but i could actually focus a lot on that and the um amazing journeys through the web to try get a delivery slot from super value somewhere within (laughs) 10 counties of you um and all that kind of stuff i actually thought the focus of just dealing day-to-day with the stuff was great or not great but I could deal with that yeah but as time dragged on and you saw more of your goals uh, disappear or so and so like I had already booked tickets for Roland Garros I was going to go to Wimbledon uh I'm really into music so I had gigs and stuff I was going to go to and festivals yeah and when they all kind of disappeared I suppose the way came down upon you that you don't know when this is going to come back yeah and um I suppose to my advantage, like say I play the piano, so I've had that the whole way through Mm. that you can kind of just go in and nothing else in the world matters. You're just focusing on playing. And actually, since the regulations have eased, uh, tennis coming back has been uh, brilliant. So like I went mad last week. I think I played five times last week. (laughs) Um, But it is those things to give you some semblance of normality, to give you something to think about other than, you know, dreadful news every day. That's... uh, um, so I, I think it's a mix. I definitely I heard Michelle Obama talking about how she's had kind of lost weeks during it, where I've definitely had that a couple of times where you're just kind of, it's very hard to find motivation for stuff because almost all the things you're working towards are off at the moment or yeah. so. And you're kind yeah. of just uh, trying to figure out what you can kind of work on to keep yourself going or so. But I, I think in the end, you always find something. Yeah, yeah. And I know it's kind of an, an impossible question, but how do you see the rest of your year going kind of tennis wise work wise oh. the well the tennis thing you see i suppose because i'm based in ireland which is not an ideal scenario for a tennis journalist but um the the media i have found are primarily just going to be interested in grand slams and um, so they you know you'll get some coverage for radio or press stuff if there is if there are grand slams so a lot of will depend if that happens yeah. um i think with the with the tour itself they'd almost be better if they just cancelled it for the, for the year because uh, it's a bit like the Leaving Cert crisis here where it's just like, we, we're definitely going to have it, we're definitely going to have it, we're definitely going to have it, and I don't know, it's cancelled. Yeah. That 
we keep having these build-ups to these tournaments and will you, won't you, and then it just gets cancelled. So I think this year, in a sense, for the tennis stuff is kind of a write-off, like, and I've had to focus a lot on other things. I'm still kind of watching and monitoring the stuff, but, you know, obviously when Wimbledon cancelled, that was the real kind of sign that this is yeah. a this is a different year than other years. This is a generational problem, kind of. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised. Like, they're going ahead with the US Open, but there's been a huge spate of withdrawals. Yeah. Roland Garros, you know, the rate in France has had an uptick again. Like, this thing of going week to week, day to day almost, of, you know, is it still going to go ahead, etc. Uh, I don't have huge confidence in any of that stuff for the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll come back and kind of talk about, you know, tennis maybe coming back and what, what you see happening. We'll, I'll come back to that maybe a little bit later. But for now, just... um to touch on kind of on your your kind of early days in in tennis i know you you played as, as a kid you had a, a disease so just talk to me a little bit about, about your early days in tennis and how that yes yeah, so i you. started playing tennis because uh, of short tennis in my primary school after uh like mini tennis in the hall kind of after yeah. class and i went to that and i really loved it and then when i was about 12 i started to get a limp in my left leg and i went to get it checked and it turned out to be a hip problem called Perthes disease, which is quite rare. And basically means that the ball of your hip, which is kind of like that, actually had kind of flattened. It almost like had worn away the top. So I had a really pronounced limp that got worse and a lot of pain. And so I had that for a few years where I had sometimes crutches, sometimes one crutch, sometimes two, etc. Couldn't really do much. Then when I was 15, I had an operation on it and I had a metal plate inserted uh, along the left hand of the hip which I still have mm. um, and I wasn't really able to get back to doing stuff oh yeah during the time when I couldn't really do other sports or tennis I could play table tennis a bit okay. so it would still be pain but you're not moving quite as much mm. so I actually got really into that and I played it all the time and I got decent enough with that representing our school and um, because I'm left-handed like the advantages in tennis would also cross with uh, table tennis so I played that a lot through secondary school and I was able to get back to actual tennis uh 16 17 or so and mm. um, i had actually been booked to join mount pleasant when i was about 12 and i still had that form of entry and that just disappeared for like years and years because it was the closest club to where i lived but then when i got to 16 17 uh someone recommended me or so you should try temple oak or so so i joined yeah. temple oak about around that time and i've been there ever since yeah, so throughout kind of school, even as you're not able to play tennis, like how big is tennis in your life? Like, do you, you know, do you watch it all the time? Do you, is it, yeah, it's big, big like tennis you? was always, um, I think I remember back the first big final I watched was probably the 99 Agassi Sampras Wimbledon final. Okay. Uh, Agassi was my favorite player when I was growing up, and I did everything to try to be like Agassi. I've even done the hairline like Agassi as well. <laughs> um, but I had like uh, Agassi's clothes and I loved returning and I had a two-handed backhand and I tried to take the ball really early, which has had awful effects in <laughs> retrospect um, of timing. But um, Agassi was my favorite player and I loved watching him. And then moving into the era of obviously people like Federer and Justine Ennan, they were kind of my favorites. So yeah, I pretty much was watching it all the time from probably 2000 on or to this one. So yeah, it was always there. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a couple of favorite players, but um, what do you think it was that really drew you to tennis over other sports? What do you think hooked um, you to tennis? Yeah, because I think I played loads of different things. I ran when I was younger. I played some guy. I played football and stuff. 
I was better at tennis quicker. Like when I did uh, Parks League and stuff when I was younger, I kind of had a good forehand very quickly. Mm. And uh, then I remember going to Trevor Harkness's camps, which were brilliant when I was a kid. And he showed me how to do like a serve and a forehand. And uh, I mean, this is all relative. It would still be like awful, but relative to who like you're playing with, I had good timing on my forehand quite early. And uh I kind of enjoyed the I enjoyed all the different aspects of tennis of you know the feel and touch and different shots and stuff and it was the same probably when I went to table tennis that I just that kind of stuff maybe the hand-eye coordination of tennis suits yeah. me or so uh, better than maybe other stuff like I still love football now but I was much more accomplished at tennis than football and even when I went back playing there recently five aside up to recent years I could be okay at football, but I can be pretty good at tennis. Like if I'm playing well and yeah. you know, you obviously aren't going to enjoy a sport if, if you can do more things in that sport than another yeah, one. So I think it yeah. just suited me more, particularly I suppose the lefty stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I know then uh, in college you studied journalism. So was your ultimate goal always tennis journalism specifically or, or how was the uh, kind of vision? Of that I think, yes, I knew I wanted to do journalism when I was about 17 or six, 16, 17. So yeah. even when I was doing my uh, going to the guidance counselor about the CEO, it was which journalism course, basically. Mm. So I knew that quite early. Um, sports journalism was definitely the way I wanted to go. I remember submitting a article to my English teacher about Rui Costa who was my favorite footballer growing up I was always into like huge into football as well and uh, I remember submitting that just I, I wasn't asked for it I just wanted yeah, him yeah. to see what it was like and whether it'd be good and all um, I loved English I, I was good at that in school so it was kind of a natural fit and when I went I ended up going to Griffith and I missed like I don't really mind this time. Like I missed out on DIT by like 10 points that year or something like that. Okay, yeah. I had been told Griffith was great. Uh, in the end, actually, Griffith was brilliant. It was like a fantastic experience and great practical one. And we had a sports journalism module, which I loved. And I think, if I remember right, I interviewed David Gillick when he was still sprinting. And he actually lives near me. And okay. I kind of knew him from years before. And... I'm gonna say I got ninety something percent, but I okay. would say that wouldn't I? But uh, yeah, yeah I, I think I think early on it was gonna be journalism. I was gonna be sports journalism, and actually in college I did a documentary on Irish tennis players, or like I think it was called "Where Are the Irish Tennis Players?" Yeah. and that was second year, and it was already in there. It was already kind of I was yeah I was I was definitely going that way. Yeah. So after college, how quickly did that all? Because I know you've worked with with RTE News Talk. As a Tante, you've kind of had different jobs around the place, but how, how quickly did you get into those roles after uh, you finished? Well, it was funny because we graduated into the uh, crash, into the catastrophe. Okay, so yeah. I remember such a downbeat commencement speech in third year of journalism, <laughs> just basically like, yeah, there's no jobs and good luck with that. Um, so when we graduated, um, there wasn't really much going on and because uh, it was a 2008. Yeah, so we graduated 2008. Yeah. I mean, into 2009, which is kind of like the, the nadir of the whole situation. Um, so I went back and did a master's. Um, I was still able to get a grant at the time for it. And there was like nothing really happening. And I remember going into the master's in DIT in digital media. So I kind of thought that was somewhat smart to still be in the realm of what I did, but uh, learn lots of new skills. And that's what I was. And it was really hard. But what was great is I was, I was in a class with brilliant people who had been kind of let go 
uh, just because of circumstances, you know, mm. so like trained architects and graphic designers who had like, 20 years experience and loads of brilliant people just, and I learned so much just from them. And I was only uh, 20 or 21 going into that or something to yeah. masters. And it was really hard, but it was brilliant just to have that challenge. And uh, yeah, once I got out of that, I was lucky enough after applying a few times to various things that I got into Satanta then um, as a researcher on their Sunday show called iTalk Sport. And that's kind of where it started then. So that's about 2011, 2012 or something around that time. Yeah, so I know as well you have your own your own site called uh, Cross Court View. So how did, how did that start and wh- when and how yeah. did that all get going? I think I always wanted to have somewhere where I'd write about tennis and yeah. it was on my mind for years and I had planned to like set up a site, set up a site and I didn't. And then when I was in News Talk at the time, uh, I kind of just decided that I'd definitely give it a go. And yeah. I remember trying out loads of different names for things and seeing what was taking. And I tried it out with some of my friends as well, but that one stuck and I bought the domain. And then, yeah, I started that one with a WordPress site and that was summer 2015 or so Um, and yeah I I always wanted to do it and I had put it off but I well like the first year when I set it up the amount of work I put into that was kind of just every day and like as you know like you're doing this stuff out of passion like you know it's not like you're getting uh, riches and rewards for this like you want to have your voice and you want to do this stuff so I put like everything into that in the first year or two just to build it up and um yeah and the thing i suppose i learned is it was so hard to do and you really have to accept that you'll put loads of work into something and seven people and a cat might like read it or something like that but you have to keep pushing to build up your brand and i remember reading something years ago at the time which actually made a lot of sense that the site or blog or whatever that you build up isn't necessarily the thing that kind of makes you the money and does really well for you it opens up other avenues that will be the thing that can help you out so the site open up the opportunity then when someone asked me would I do a radio thing and that yeah. led to other stuff and then I also got some writing work out of the site because I had written about tennis yeah, on the yeah, site yeah. so in some ways it was definitely a really good success for uh, giving me some sort of presence as someone who writes about tennis or covers tennis to open up into other avenues yeah yeah and what do you think is the hardest thing about running that site um it's it can be very frustrating when you don't know how well people will respond to stuff and you can put a lot of work into something like a lot, you know, talk to a lot of people, get quotes, all this kind of stuff and doesn't get traction. Um, and even when you've done stuff for a while, uh, it mightn't get traction just because the way, you know, people are inundated with information all the time. Yeah. It's incredibly hard to catch someone's, infor- catch someone's attention on a news feed uh, with so much, you know, people just become kind of numb to it. So, it can be frustrating to put a lot of work into something and it doesn't really get uh, the attention that you want. Um, but I guess it depends on the goals of what you think it should be. Like I think often people talk about uh, YouTube phenomenons and website phenomenons where someone who was famous in another discipline started a site or started something like that and then they have you know 100,000 followers. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but they had a name recognition before that they could carry over to that. I'm not saying that's not a good thing to set up, but it's different if you just, you know, start from the very bottom of just trying to create something and, you know, kind of build it through Google, et cetera. I think the technical stuff of sites, it was challenging as well. At the very start, I did it through WordPress and I didn't really do much coding, 
but over time I learned I've learned a lot about kind of how Google search works and analytics mm. and learned to code a lot better and stuff so now I code the site and a lot of that was then because I could never get it the way I wanted using WordPress yeah. so I got I got fed up with it then particularly like last year or it's just like no I wanted to look this way so yeah I did it all again from scratch so but I enjoyed that but I could see why for people that's a huge challenge to kind of keep up to date with that particularly as people are use sites so much more on mobile devices and tablets and all that you can't just kind of learn one thing and ignore that then of changes like you have to keep kind of tracking what's actually happening so yeah definitely there are big challenges to it yeah and on the flip side then what do you think what's your favorite thing or what do you think is the best thing about having the site you do i like i've always liked with the irish stuff that say um even the last irish open i was at and say when georgia Drummond won mm-hmm. and the year before when people Atwell won that I like the idea of giving players uh, the attention that they deserve for doing something that is kind of sadly neglected everywhere yeah. else. So it was great kind of for Pete and George. I don't think it's great for them, but I liked being able to kind of Georgia one that Georgia at least get someone to come and interview her and give her an article and maybe, you know, for her family or someone that like, you know, at least someone turned up and kind of, gave her the attention she deserves for being like yeah. a brilliant player. And there's so many Irish players who put so much effort into, into this stuff. And, you know, when they do things like that, when they win Irish Opens or they're playing Davis Cup or Fed Cup, that, you know, why, are, why isn't anyone giving them some coverage? Like, you know, like even just an article, even just something to show that they exist, that they're doing stuff. And I like, I do like kind of when you can do some stuff like that. I mean, obviously the glamour stuff, if you get to interview top players and all, that's all, that's brilliant. And tournaments and all. But uh, I think it's nice with that. I remember when James Kluski retired and I did an article with him and uh, I, I, and James, uh, what's it called? And, yeah, and Connor and Ireland and all Sam and stuff. But it's nice to at least be able to give some attention to people who really lack it in, in a, obviously an Irish country that's mad into almost all the other sports. Yeah, yeah. And I was on that, um, like you know you're mentioning obviously kind of giving them attention that they they wouldn't get a lot of so like what what, what, what's your view on on just like the irish public as as kind of an audience of tennis specifically like how do you think the sad thing is i the sad thing is i can't think of another phrase except that the sport is like irrelevant basically to the major irish public and i know even for being in media places that trying to push uh, tennis into stuff is almost a losing battle i remember once wanting to put a line into a radio show about uh federer beating nadal in basel for the first time yeah it was the first match he beaten nadal for four years or something like that in 2015 and uh it was just a line it's like oh would you put that in you know with the headlines or something else and they wouldn't do it like yeah and it's kind of it's federer and nadal um <laughs> but it would just kind of showed you that it's very hard even to get coverage of grand slams like you know of talking about Djokovic and Serena and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. it's very hard to get the superstars coverage in Ireland because we have so many sports and there's so little interest and um, so it's you know it's a chicken and egg thing if you don't cover tennis people don't know about tennis but then if people aren't interested in tennis yeah. they don't want to necessarily listen to coverage yeah. or, or watch coverage of tennis and um, I would always be on the side more that 
you should try your best to cover the different sports, at least to a small degree. Of course, football and GAA and rugby are going to dominate and all, but you should kind of set aside a certain amount of time to cover those sports because there is an audience for these sports. They're just not as big as the other ones. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I think compared to the vast majority of sports, tennis just does not feature in Irish life apart from um, obviously the people who play the, the percentage and the two weeks, of course, of Wimbledon yeah. when everyone's yeah. out in the parks, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then they all go again. You know, I guess I have to ask, what do you think could be done to, to improve that, to bring tennis more to the forefront a little bit? Well, I was listening to, yeah, I've, I've done loads of these things over the years. Um, I've, I've done like documentaries and talking to all the different players and coaches and stuff. I listened to your podcast with Paul Case, which is really good, and, and Paul's great and passionate about it. And he is absolutely right with the court surface um, that it's horrendous and it has held players back here. Uh, I would think probably uh, a combination is best in terms of there are going to be loads of players, uh, pretty doubles players of certain ages and all, who won't want to play on harder surfaces. And for clubs that can afford it in terms of size, if you have eight courts, 12 courts, etc., that you'd probably need to have two surfaces. Like you probably need to have a certain amount of omni astro for players who are used to that and want to play it. And then either hard courts, indoor or clay for performance players and coaches. But there's no doubt, like I have got to play in clay courts a few times and uh and you talk to coaches all the time and i'm always interested in talking to coaches of different levels and just the things of say uh you cannot show a kid properly how to hit a top spin serve how to hit proper spin on a shot yeah. because it won't respond on the surface and they won't know that they've hit it properly or not and that's just an endless frustration and of course it's one of the funny things if you can hit a decent kick serve people kind of fall over on the other side of the net because they just haven't seen anything. And if you notice as well of how so many shots uh, are just bunting shots on yeah. Omni-Turf, like, you know, it all, it is kind of, as, as Paul was saying, like just survival of uh, if you can survive the mishits and stuff and yeah. get away with it. Like there aren't actually strokes. They're just kind of fiddly kind of things going slap, on. Yeah. Um, then uh, the funding is an issue. I think... I've always advocated, well, not always advocated, as if I'm kind of this long-term hero of it. Uh, I've thought for a few years, haven't talked to people, that we should have a, de a designated fund of support for the number one players. You know, something like even 20,000 or 30,000, like completely with receipts and all, of just helping them go on the tour, pay for coaching. And yeah. it's almost like a reward for someone that if you get to be Irish number one, over you know it could be over a two-year period of ranking or whatever it is that you get some support to have a go around the itfs and all that stuff for the year um and i just think as an incentive it would help i i just think for because we do have that for podium placings in the other sports where you know there is uh, up to gold medal standard obviously fifty thousand and that kind of stuff um i just would like to give the players the opportunity to get that kind of reward and you know, they might not improve their ranking or so, but it's just so hard at the moment if they don't have private sponsors or donors to help them to go to academies, yeah. et cetera. Um, yeah, I, then, yeah, as Paul was saying as well, like, more player, more matches, et cetera. Every coach I've ever spoken to, up yeah. to like Dave Miley from the ITF, like they need to be playing more matches, they should be playing, et cetera. And he had a whole formula of all that, you know, I think it was... I could be wrong now. It was in an article I did with him, but it's something like, you know, 70 good level matches, you know, a year or, or something, you know, some kind of 
or 70 or 100, something like very strong level matches yeah, yeah. or some sort of thing. Um, yeah, it, it's... I, I don't have... I, like it sounds really bad, Patrick. I don't have huge hope at the moment that things will change unless we kind of get those grassroots things right. Yeah. What I would say is probably with Nay Spring and Clay Courts, one thing that's a bit exciting about these clubs and Divest, you know, is it's not like they're a panacea that are going to sort everything, but what is fantastic is that there will be, and they're very good junior coaching in Nace, but that there will be a five or six year old who will turn up to the club with their parents or whoever, and their first experience of tennis in Ireland would be on the clay court, like, you know. The yeah. first time hitting shots would be on a clay court, which has not been the case. No. Uh, and that's brilliant. Like That's kind of what you'd hope for, is that you will need that balance of people who can still play an Omni, but also for kids and coaches and all, and the performance players, that we train on clay or hard court because we need to develop their strokes and make them complete players. And I think that is probably the best chance going forward of some sort of hybrid combination of, of two surfaces. Yeah, so you're very much saying that the best ways to kind of raise the profile of tennis among the public is to have one or two, you know, successful players that will then bring the interest well, to the public. Well, actually, one of the other things is there's getting tennis into schools and getting people to play tennis in schools. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of a harbinger of doom almost when I went into secondary school and they had tennis courts, which they ripped out the year before to put in five-a-side uh, <laughs> football pitches. Now, I did play lots of five-a-side school and I loved it, but it was kind of just like, oh, well, there are like six whatever courts gone that people aren't going to be playing tennis in yeah. school. Uh, getting it into school is so important. I think getting the message out as well, which I always think is unique about tennis, is tennis is one of the few sports that you can play your entire life. And you will always find a grade to play. Like everyone I know around my age or a bit older has to stop kind of playing football. Like, you know, has to stop their sports just because, you know, their knees or yeah, various injuries. Yeah. They can't, even five-a-side and stuff, they can't really do that as much anymore. Whereas tennis is, and I know, I know 80-year-old tennis players. Like, you know, yeah, I have yeah. played with, yeah. I played with like last year, an 80-year-old tennis player. Uh, and it's just, you will always find a grade for yourself. And that's where I think you will still have to have some Omni because you want those people to be able to play and keep going, but you also want to serve pe- the performance players yeah, and the yeah. kids and all the coaches to like, that's what I hope for most clubs is that they can kind of, there's always that debate back and forth of, you know, most members are there for maybe social purposes, but you do, I think have to respect each side. The show, the social purposes pay for the club but the performance players are the ones who actually bring the sport forward and you need to be able to uh, appease both. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just to, to bring it back to, to your kind of experience, another point, um, when you've kind of been doing interviews and you've been working at, at events, how approachable have you found players and how have you found that experience of, of working as a, a, like a, a media official in, in tournaments? Well, I, I think... Uh, there are certain um, so obviously with Irish one of the things when I was starting out obviously Irish players are brilliant generally in terms of and they've been so amenable to me like when I first started I think James McGee was my first interview when he was he was off injured he was around 150 in the world or so but I I mean it was great that I was able to get in touch with him and then text him whatever like that and then he met me for an interview and there wasn't a big kind of you know he's he's just a really nice guy and then as I found when I interviewed more people particularly in Ireland that they're generally all just very nice people and they're very yeah. happy to talk at the tournament level stuff. It, it's much more, uh, obviously organized and, you know, for the safety of the players, much anything. So I have contacted agents to try to get interviews for stuff. And, uh, because I'm not, 
because <laughs> I'm not CNN and other bits like yeah. that, you know, it can be hard going. That said, when you're at a tournament, if you're there and, uh, you know, you're given your application and your form, then you will get to talk to the players and stuff. So it is really just getting at the tournaments. That's hard from an Irish point of view because uh, basically no, pl- no places are going to support you for a media accreditation. I was kind of optimistic for this year for Wimbledon after having gone last year that I, you know, I had a chance probably to get some accreditation this year either through my site or someone else. Of course, that's been kind of cancelled yeah. for the moment. But um, it's one of the things that Irish people are at a disadvantage, no question, that if there isn't a lot of attention on tennis, there isn't a lot of coverage of tennis, so there are less media places inclined to give press accreditation to send people to go to these kinds of tournaments. So you kind of have to uh, do what you can around the fringes of the stuff. But I think with players, particularly if you treat them professionally and all, like when I was at the you know stuff before talking to those players, if you're professional, uh, they're happy enough to talk. Like, you know, I, I was never going to be, when I set up my site and the way I write about stuff, I was never going to be asking about, you know, who your girlfriend or boyfriend is. Yeah, and, yeah know what clothes you're wearing all this kind of stuff i was always interested in the tactical stuff the mental stuff of like how do you do this how do you deal with that etc so i have found generally particularly uh, within the confines that you're dealing with you know players are approachable you know and they will talk to you and stuff you know once you've gone through the, the proper channels have you had any one or two that have been particularly nice and approachable or maybe particularly difficult that you've found uh, I suppose you wouldn't name. Uh, no, to be honest, I can't think of anyone who's particularly difficult. There's people, obviously, who it's not their first language, so you know, yeah. you like it all. But as I said, I suppose what I found surprising is when I interviewed, say, Tamea Bavas, like who's been world number one in doubles and has been top twenty in singles. That she's actually like the, one of the nicest people you'd ever meet in your life. Like she's just so nice. Like and she yeah. sits down and talks to just a complete randomer. Like you know, and is kind of free to talk about stuff. Uh, and I, I think. Um, a lot of them, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of them are extremely nice. Oh, yeah, one thing I would say particularly about Irish players, which is great, is they're so straightforward and honest and kind of it yeah. is what it is kind of stuff. So I think tennis players, more than anyone, know exactly what their level is, know exactly what the challenge is, and there's no nonsense with them about stuff. So you'll talk to Irish players and they'll say exactly what it is and they were good at this they weren't good at this this is what the level was and i love that like i love heather they don't kind of hedge their bets and stuff they just tell you uh the stuff but no i mean i i can't think of not in um tennis now in other sports when i worked in sports places players and stuff can be uh very difficult <laughs> um, awkward personalities but no from my experience of tennis so far uh generally everyone's been because okay, there are some players you might ask for an interview and they won't inter- they won't talk to you. Yeah. yeah. And they mightn't be nice. I don't know. But yeah, I mean yeah, they yeah. they've they've made the decision anyway not to talk to you. Like so you, you can't really judge them on that. But no, of the people I have spoken to, I can't think of anyone who's yeah. particularly nasty or anything like that. You know, to look into the future then for you, what are your plans with, with Crossgrid View or with, with your other kind of lines of work? Uh was gonna set up a podcast, but you've taken over that uh period. Um yeah, with the site, um I find this year kind of difficult because it's just it's such a mess that uh, I wanted to go back to writing more profiles and doing that kind of stuff and expanding the site, but um this year's just kind of like a write-up. I mean, we're already into August anyway. Um so hopefully if we can get to some sort of order next year, I can go back to doing other stuff. 
or can go back to kind of working on things. Um, one thing from the site that you always want is I found when I was doing news and stuff that there's no real point because there are so many sources for news and you would yeah. spend, you know, your hour or whatever your time kind of getting your research right and doing a kind of news story like Federer is injured or et cetera, et cetera. And it just, it won't get anywhere. Like, you know, so because it's just too much competition for that. Yeah. So my aim is always really uh, in-depth profiles, which do get good traction. And it's amazing with the site, how there will be loads of people in Russia who will still read about a Kazakina profile I did like four years ago <laughs> or so. And uh, you'll see like a, uh, I did one of Born a Charity years ago and that got shared around those places. And, uh, you know, the in-depth profiles I like as well because I usually would pick a player who might be kind of top 100-ish or 90 or so young and I would have seen them maybe and I'd be kind of like, oh, they look promising. They look like they're going to be the real deal. And you've little to lose in a sense because if they become a superstar, then you'll get huge hits and all that stuff because you're kind of ahead of the curve. You always get the thing in tennis. Of say, uh, like I did a Rebecca in a few months ago, and she had already done well at the end of last year. But you always get this point where these players who are up and coming, they'll beat one of the big players in the tournament, and then everyone on Google is like, "Who is Elena Rebecca?" Yeah. Like you know. Um, so I like the profiles and uh, the tournament profiles and the kind of more long depth. I'll probably go back to interviews and stuff as well. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of that stuff will probably be more into next year. Uh, probably depending because i mean there's a good chance that most of the tournaments this year will be kind of cancelled yeah 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 it's just no it's so precarious at the moment and probably even ones that go ahead will be trickier for you know you to to, to go yeah, to. well that's the thing like i was going to go you know i flight spoke to roland garris and i was going to go to wimbledon but i wouldn't travel to them now like yeah know, i wouldn't um and there's loads of stuff i'm missing out on you know everyone is affected by these things but there's also i suppose maybe there's a bit of a silly concept in tennis of all the people who live and breathe tennis all day think it's the most important thing in the world. And it is important and everyone loves it, but it, it's a global pandemic. Yeah. So, you know, with these players who kind of decide that, you know, like Nadal and say, uh, and Ash Barty, you know, they weren't going to go to the US Open, that, you know, they are seeing the bigger picture. Like, you know, they don't really want to take the risks and, they, and they, they're just not sure of the situation. And they can always play tournaments in the future. And I think with the tennis tour, the obsession with keeping the tournaments going. I understand that obviously there's financial incentives and all to do that, but it's a once in a generation, once in a century event. And sport is a luxury. Like, you know, there are people really struggling economies and countries and healthcare systems really struggling. And tennis is just so far down, you know, the uh, priority list for that kind of stuff that, that's why I wouldn't be surprised. And it's unfortunate because I'm sure the USTA are doing their absolute best with the tournament. But I wouldn't be surprised if a load more players just pull out, you know, coming up to it because yeah. they're just not comfortable. You know, they're just not comfortable with it. Yeah. You know, I, I know your, your trips to, to Roland Garros and Wimbledon this year were, were called off. But in the past, you've, you've been to those. So of the slams, which have you been to and which have you enjoyed most? Uh, I've been to three of the four. So I was at the US Open a long time ago on uh, J1 actually but I was very lucky there I got to see Federer and Anand when they were both number one okay. and Arthur Ashe so that was a, a bonus um, then yeah I spent a lot or I spent most of the first week uh, of last year at Roland Garros and then Wimbledon and they were really important and really eye-opening that I had a very definitive list of players I wanted to see I wanted to spread it out as much as possible 
So I had some kind of co good stats. I was happy with of having seen like 25 or 30 of the top 50 women and like 20 of the top mm. 50 men. And stuff. But um, the, the objective was to see as many of the players as I possibly can to, you know, you, you need to see how they produce shots, how they move, what it's like. And all. I have seen good players over the years and various things, but I wanted to see like Karolina Lukova and you wanted to see Karen Hashinoff and you wanted to see yeah. all these kind of players. Um, on the women's side, it's so much easier because I suppose the winners have been spread out over the years that there are more of them on outside courts. So you have a better chance of seeing them. So yeah. on outside courts, Wimbledon, as I would see like Sloan Stevens, Muguruza, Kvitova, uh, et cetera. But you're also able to see Vavrinka on outside courts. Yeah. Uh, but it's just a kind of, it gives you a, a terrific window into this is how players hit the ball. This is what they look like. You know, this is the defense. And then it's, you know, interesting to go back to, uh, I think it was after Wimbledon, the Irish Open final over the week after. Yeah, and just, you know, to see if you want to see where those guys are and where the other guys are, you know, it'll show you physicality and speed are almost more than anything. When you see the top 100 players, they are just so strong, both genders, and so fast in defense. Uh, obviously, there's huge power and uh, consistency, but they just they're they're physical specimens that just don't look like you know normal humans. Like yeah. they kind of they look like superheroes almost as a callback to your opening. Yeah. Uh, and I remember it actually at a Davis Cup years ago when Ireland played Finland and Jarko Neiman was playing, and he was top fifty at the time. I mean, he'd been top fifty for ten years, and he didn't look like normal people like you know he looked like something special like he was kind of six foot two or three and had a glow about him almost like you know and obviously he's a brilliant player but they are just superhuman athletes and to get an appreciation of that is great at the tournaments um, and so yeah i can't wait till whenever things are kind of a bit more normalized to go back to all them and obviously australian opens definitely yeah. on the list yeah yeah um so what's your best memory from a, an event you've you've been to I think the most, uh, I'd say the two actually, uh, at Roland Garros, I was front row in Sumo Machu, their new small course to see Vavrinka. And I still probably have never seen anything like watching him as if you're at the fence in Temple Oak watching someone <laughs> for like, you know, three hours that yeah. just the power and the ability. But then the Thursday at Wimbledon, where I was so lucky to get into court one and you had Federer, Williams, Kvitova, Murray playing. Right. Yeah. And just to see, like I saw Federer years and years ago, but to see him, I mean, you'd never get fed up with him. But I think to see him and actually just the accuracy in the movement. But then Serena as well, who Serena's serve is just magnificent, like in real life. And if you've any appreciation for technical stuff and if you play a bit yourself and all that kind of thing, that you're just kind of, you're just watching perfection. Like, you know, that's a yeah. perfect serve. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's, I think they're the two of, I was so lucky on the Thursday. And I think that might be something I'll be lucky in my whole life to have seen those two because you don't know how long they'll be around if that would happen. Yeah. Again. Uh, and then just to see Stan of, um, you can kind of get to see all these people. Like say, that is the lucky. And I'd say to people as well, when tournaments have to come back and all, is get a day pass to a tournament if you're in one of the cities at the time. They're like 20, 25 euro. I was able to get, like I was front row to watch Andrescu 
on an outside court in the middle of nowhere in Roland Garros. And I was yeah. just there with her coaching team, basically. And she'd already won Indian Wells and she'd obviously go on and win the US Open. But you can see unbelievable players all over these grounds for 20 euro, 25 euro. And yeah. you can sit as close to them as you would down your local club, you know, and, and there's nothing like it. It's yeah. incredible yeah. experience. Um, so of the events you've been to, and, and maybe choose an event that, that's not a Grand Slam, which one would you recommend most uh, a visit to? Um, well, actually, the ones I'd love to go to more, I'd love to try uh, things like Rome and Madrid, because yeah. I've, I've been to Madrid as a city, you know. Uh, I think what's most successful to people, because I think the joint tournaments are better than the single mm-hmm. uh, gender tournaments in terms of, you have a much better spread of people to see and there's never, there's always somewhere to go. Like, you know, you've 12, you know, 16 courts there and you'll be seeing someone good on all of them. And um, so that is probably why I'd, I'd prefer Roland Garros to Wimbledon for accessibility and ease. Obviously okay. used to, you know, for people, they could book their tickets for Roland Garros in March and, you know, fly over if they're in Paris anyway. And the ones I'd like to explore more, yeah, will be actually more of the tour events um so i would probably be looking to sometime get to rome and madrid um yeah because as joint tournaments where you know that all the top players are going to be there yeah yeah and yeah so to look at at kind of just tennis for a little bit um i I know you're maybe skeptical about events happening in 2020 but what do you maybe see happening if if events do go ahead who who do you see maybe coming through and and winning the us open today i'm not stunned that djokovic is going to play it anyway (laughs) um the thing that changed everything was the rankings announcements a few months ago where they switched to an elongated calendar that Mm. meant that how, how players did at the last two grand slams at the end of last year counted the same so basically Rafa couldn't add any more points this year because he won Roland Garros in the US Open, which yeah. obviously meant that he didn't need to go if he didn't want to. Yeah. So they, I think that was fair with the rankings that they wouldn't penalize people who weren't comfortable playing, Absolutely. but they did give an, an opportunity to people who wanted to add points who maybe didn't do so well. Uh, it's a really strange... I mean, the women's draws are always up in the air. Just generally, you can, you can very... It's very hard to predict them. But with five, I think it's... At least four of the top ten aren't going to be playing. Um, Serena's already back. I, pre- I would presume the likelihood is that the players who are based in America or who, are, who have already travelled over to America yeah. are going to play the US Open. And the European players, particularly the ones at the Prague Open this week, they're the ones who, hmm, I wonder, will they go? Like, um, so with the women's draw, I could certainly see Serena being you know, there thereabouts as yeah. per usual. With the men's, I... You, with who's left? Because obviously we've no Federer, no Nadal. Your favourites are going to be Djokovic and Team. Obviously, um, the big incentive for players a little further down the rankings, given the pullouts and all, is it is going to be this unusual event where players who probably were never going to be near a quarter or semi final might make a quarter or semi final, yeah. and that's huge in terms of obviously ranking points and money. But. Uh, the thing is, it's just I would have people have debated this about whether it be an asterisk around the tournament. I would put an asterisk around the tournament because I think a lot of the essential elements of a Grand Slam are missing this year uh, in terms of obviously the pool of players, but uh, we haven't had a season. So it isn't the test of the usual kind of stamina and finding your form at the best yeah. time that it would be for. There's no crowd. 
So there isn't the test of do you flourish with the pressure of fans or do you wilt with the pressure of fans? And there are big aspects of Grand Slams as you always see through the years. Uh, but then there's also just the concern of the controls and restrictions all the time for players that there's, it's very hard for the players to go there and not be thinking about their movements all day and trying to avoid people and, you know, their team, et cetera, and all. So I think it is just like these are the pandemic Grand Slams kind of stuff, but they're not. I wouldn't think of them in the same way as a normal year's Grand Slams because they're so unusual. They're so strange. And I have heard talk as well about, you know, should there be best of five sets for the men's given that there hasn't been a tour? Mm. I could I could understand that argument of, it, it might be just too risky on their bodies that, you know, they haven't had the tour to build up their strength. Like, you know, they've yeah. just been playing primarily themselves or exhibitions. And what happens if we get a spate of injuries in the men's early on? Because, you know, it, like obviously best of five is so grueling and it continues to get more grueling every year. And what would you be then? Would it, you know, say if we have lots of the top players are gone from the men's draw, then the top players that enter, and then a few of them get injured after, you know, second or third round in five sets. And then you're left with kind of no offense to them because obviously they're, they're excellent players. But, you know, you could be 25 in the world against 40 in the world, you know, kind of stuff in the quarters. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and Like it's not, I mean, look, these are brilliant players. I'm not saying it's not like an, I didn't get into the draw. You know, it's not that kind of situation. But there are so many issues hovering around it that it's hard not to think of this as a you know, just one-off kind of thing or like an unusual tournament that you wouldn't think of in the same way as normal Grand Slams. Yeah, now to touch on Serena there, do you do you see her reaching 24, passing 24? Where do you see her finishing off? Well, she's obviously a great chance if she can play this. Um, yeah. You know, she's always brilliant at the US Open. In fairness to her, that with all the stuff about will she get to 24 or not, she has gotten to multiple finals putting herself in the position. She's been outplayed generally in the finals um andriescu was outstanding obviously halep was outstanding kerber was excellent um that it's a brilliant opportunity for her if you think of say there won't be barty there won't be svidalina uh there won't be um well i'm not sure the other two or three who aren't going to go halep is a bit up and down with it i think she might be still entered in it but i'm not sure if she'll actually go etc um, it's an amazing opportunity for obviously if there's a weekend draw she's usually brilliant at the US Open she's playing quite well at the moment um, so yeah I, I could definitely see if she plays it if it goes ahead and she plays it she probably will be favourite and uh, yeah I wouldn't be surprised at all then if she equals a 24 but she wants 25 I mean yeah, she doesn't yeah. just want to have the 24 alongside Margaret Court she wants to be out on her own so that's probably even more interesting she might win this um, but what will happen with Roland Garros and what will happen when we can kind of have tournaments back again. One of the big concerns would obviously be that if the US Open say didn't go ahead, though it looks like it will now, is that you would have Roland Garros and then you'd have nothing until the next Roland Garros. Yeah. Just by the way, Melbourne looks very ropey at the moment. Um, yeah, so to, to move even past COVID times and look at the women's game a little bit more, um, this obviously hasn't been a, a dominant player, you'd say, in the last maybe four to five years it's been a, a lot of slam winners do, do you see that continuing or do you see maybe a, a, play, a couple of two or three players emerging that will that will rack up a lot of titles over the next you know five to ten years yeah i don't know i i i probably 
Now, bear in mind, I've written so many previews to women's uh, Grand Slams and all, and just been way off all the time. Like, it usually you go from you have a collection of eight players, and it becomes like fifteen players, and then you hope for the stuff. But then you have someone like Sophia Cannon who wins, and it's yeah. Like, Sophia Cannon's a really good player, but I didn't think she'd win a Grand Slam. This no. Year. Um, yeah, I I would think at the moment, but you could also say of the men's when it's finished, uh, when the la- when the lads have gone. Um, that it's very open then. And who do you think will be dominating? Will there be someone who's dominating? I don't know. Um, I suppose all the hype and excitement, and she is a special talent, would be Coco Goff. Now, she's still so young, and she still has a lot to do. But her mental strength for her age and her record against players above her is incredible. And almost, if you're going on about one thing about her that's special, is her mental resilience which is kind of everything almost like you know you can have all the talent and the speed and endurance and all but if you can keep things going and write the problems during a match and just you know find a way to eke it out i mean look how well that's worked for novak Djokovic. and now i wouldn't go mad with her of oh yeah she's gonna win 20 grand slams and all that kind of stuff but she's a very special talent i think people as well I would say it's more likelihood, yeah, of there will be swapping around. I think someone like Simona Halep, she's so fit. She's such a fighter. She'll always be there. I think she's just someone who will perennially be in the last four of tournaments. And she'll win a few and she'll lose some. Um, You know, someone like Kvitova might have a good couple of weeks again sometime at like a US Open or Wimbledon or so, or sorry, Australia or or Wimbledon. Um, But yeah, it's really... It's really wide open. I hope that Andreescu can kind of get back to some sort of fitness. She's she got over a knee issue, a knee issue, and now she's a foot problem. She's an extremely exciting player, and the level she reached uh, against Serena and stuff, like she just has everything in her game. A bit like Osaka, of course, as well. I think Osaka is another one like Halep, where I would expect that she'll just be there thereabouts in tournaments for the next, you know, five. 10 years yeah, or something yeah. she's just uh, she's so many weapons and she's super fit and all stuff so I think maybe what you might have is a group of two three four players who will always kind of be around somewhere but then there'll always be the room for people like Sophia Kennan to come through yeah. and Bondrashva to come through and you know as Ostapenko came through and all that there will be that those kind of players who pop up um, one I'm very excited about is probably Mukova I think she's um She's such an unusual type of player who has a good serve and can volley and has lots of variety and big forehand and all. I think one of the great things about how the tour has changed probably is because the courts are slower and there's so many more baseline rallies, it has forced players to be a bit more creative and to do things differently, to add in more angles and drop shots and approach to the net and you know, kind of add a bit more variety to their game is almost forced just to get out of the bang, bang, bang nature of the rallies. So I think that is really encouraging. There's a lot of young female players with lots of variety around the top, you know, 10, 20, 30. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a tough one to predict, but there's, um, it'll just be interesting to see, I think, how it, how it turns out over the coming years. Well, just a couple more questions, Stephen. I um, really appreciate your, your, your time today. Um, if you were to give some advice to, to people that were, um, you know, maybe some, some, some budding tennis journalists, you know, keen in tennis um, and maybe would, be interested in covering it in kind of a, a similar similar capacity maybe to yourself what kind of advice would you give to to them um i i think you have to 
you, you have to have a lot of passion for it because it it will take a while for things to get moving in the way you want. I think you have to expect that you will put a lot of work into some stuff at the start and your mother will be the main person who reads it, like, you know, before you get going. That uh, you have to keep at it. Don't be, don't get too obsessed with, there'll always be these stories about, you know, phenomenons of different areas of social media and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they have a million subscribers on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. That the absolute vast majority for everyone is that's not how it happens. Like, you know, you have to work away at it for a while and hopefully get some exposure or so. The worry would be probably even in, in the time since I did it, it or started my site is there's just so much competition for everything uh, that to get, even if you're very good, to get some attention, to get some eyeballs to the stuff is so difficult, you know, to build up a presence to find attention is, is so hard. Um, so it's kind of if your if your heart is set on it, you know, obviously you can't put someone off their heart, you know, their heart being set on it. But I think what I found as well is particularly in Ireland, if so it's like it's very hard, if not impossible, that that'll be your sole income stream of just being you know, like a, a tennis journalist in Ireland. Yeah. You, you do other stuff. So I do other stuff. I, I'm a graphic designer and I write about other stuff, etc. Now I have at times given like all my time and attention to tennis and I still follow it all the time and do stuff and figure around grand slams but i have to do other things like you know, yeah like to support it. um so it's i think it's almost like you don't go into this with a kind of a a fragile uh concept i think you kind of i'm not saying like it's a vocation thing but you you kind of have to like know this is what you want to do and it will be hard and you're probably not going to be driving a BMW and uh, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's a tough old slog. And if you work in media places, like when I worked with the researchers and news talk and when you're in RT and all that kind of stuff, you know, people work really, really hard. Like, you know, it's a hard job. And, and if you're doing new stuff as well, you take it home with you. Like, you know, it, it doesn't kind of stop, particularly with tennis tournaments where, you know, the hours can be obviously crazy with Australia and US times and yeah. all that. It will be, you know, you really want to eat and drink it kind of stuff. Now, your passion would override those concerns because you just love it. So say when I was at, particularly at say Roland Garros last year, it's like the greatest four or five days I can remember almost having. I was more than delighted to be there for 12 hours of the day. Yeah, yeah. And I was almost on the verge of tears when I went out the last <laughs> night. That's been like, can I not just stay here forever? Like, you know, like I can't get enough of watching and being part of all of it or you not know, being part of it, but, you know, just being in that kind of situation and environment. Uh, but I think if you, if you keep, if it is the thing that you have to do, you should pursue it, but you might have to pursue it along with something else you're doing. And then just kind of, you know, it's absolutely easy to set up a site, particularly if you're using like WordPress or, you know, yeah. kind of uh, Wix or all that kind of stuff. So there's no issues. It's really cheap to set up a site. It's very easy to set up a site like that. Now, with reservations, obviously, it'll be a theme, et cetera, that that's the way it looks. But if you want to, I want to write an article and I want to have it on the website, you can do that, in a, you know, you can do it in a day. But I mean, you could do that yeah. this week, you know, in terms of you write your article, you can get it set up, et cetera. But the big thing is keeping at it. And that's the hardest thing of setting up a site. These statistics at times, if you know, like the amount of people who set up a site or do stuff like that. And then the amount of people who stop doing anything on it after like a year or two years, et cetera. Yeah. And it's huge, obviously. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. keeping at it is almost one of the biggest things of 
trying to keep producing uh, articles or podcasts or whatever it is, or videos on YouTube, whatever that you're doing, and just building up and building up and just, you know, grabbing a few more followers, a few more subscribers at the time and building up. And then hoping that maybe you'll get your kind of chances of breaks. So like when I was doing some Wimbledon previews years and years ago, someone on spin uh, was Googling for like someone in Ireland who wrote about tennis and then found my articles and contacted me. And that's the first radio stuff I ever got was mm. on one of the spin shows just doing uh, a few hits during Wimbledon, I don't know, 2015 or 2016 or something. And uh, just kind of here's what's going on. And then that led to some RT stuff. Then again, someone was looking for someone like me, I guess. And I got in to do Sean O'Rourke of just a Wimbledon kind of update. And then things yeah. led from there. Uh, so, but you only get that if you keep going at it. And that's the hardest thing is to keep at it. It's almost like, I suppose, a tennis player. Yeah, the hardest thing is to yeah, keep yeah. mind every day. But it is the same probably concept loosely anyway for tennis journalism. Yeah, absolutely. It's wise words. Um, there's a f- final final question. What, what's your favorite thing about tennis? What kind of keeps you going in, in tennis? Uh, thing that keeps me going playing is my forehand. Uh, those, those rare moments when you catch up great. Um, thing watching, I love um, I love creativity and and variety. I suppose so. I was always drawn to people like Federer and Enan and stuff. Um, I mean, in some ways, I love all of it, but I particularly love watching all around complete players. Yeah. And uh, I could watch them all day, and I love the variety of stuff. Say when you go around watching players at the tournaments of they don't just have two shots they don't just have the certain way of hitting the ball that they can kind of just adapt to the situation and do various things and i love that i think if you you can find joy in watching players all the way down the rankings who just do things a little bit differently than the norm and i love that and i love when you see someone who comes along who's 150 in the world or whatever and they do something that you haven't really seen exactly like that before so I do love that. I love players who can kind of push the norms or accepted habits of tennis. And uh, and they don't have to be the kind of gods. They can just be, you know, uh, players who just do something a little bit differently to what you're used to. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I suppose you could give all kinds of answers for that. But yeah, I, I think creativity, just the constant uh, renewal of creativity in, in tennis is kind of something that will keep me going. Brilliant, yeah, brilliant. Um, you know, I think we'll leave it there, Stephen. Uh, just, just a big thanks again for for your time, and just want to to wish you well, I guess, for the rest of the year and and going forwards in in whatever you're you find yourself doing. Uh, good luck and, and a big thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Adam, and well done on uh, your success with Irish tennis updates. Well, thank you, thank you very much. A big thanks again to Stephen for his time and his really great insights into Irish tennis and the life of a tennis journalist in Ireland. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please comment, subscribe, like, and tell a friend. I believe the best way to help more people discover the show is word of mouth. So if you know anyone who you think might be interested, please consider passing it on. I'd also love to hear what you thought of this episode. So if you have any feedback, feel free to send me an email at irishtennisupdates at gmail.com. That's all for this episode, and until next week, I've been Adam, your host. Stay safe, and goodbye.